Welcome to another episode of Things We Said Today, a Beatles talk show podcast that we do every two weeks on YouTube, and it's also heard on many audio platforms. On this show, we talk about anything we feel like with the Beatles, the past, the present, their history, their music, individual songs, any particular aspect we want to we can talk about here on this show. I'm Ken Michaels. I'm one of the three regular co-hosts of the show, and I do hope you know me for my syndicated Beatles radio program, heard on over 50 radio stations at the present time, called Every Little Thing. I also do another talk show podcast called Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast, which is also bi-weekly on YouTube and audio platforms as well. And I have my own YouTube channel, Ken Michaels Radio, which is all Beatles-centric. Lots of conversations about the Beatles with authors, musicians, friends, anyone that wants to talk about the Beatles with me on that channel. And we have our two other regulars on the show. First of all, a man who has been part of New York Radio for about 40 years on New York's WFUV and um, does incredible interviews, programs, amazing music, and uh, has done a number of Beatles specials through the years on the channel. And that's our own Darren DeVivo. Hello, Darren. Hello. Hey, everyone. What's happening? It's kind of difficult to pry Darren out of City Field these days, but we're very grateful that you can make it for the show this time. I, I, I had to squeeze it into my uh, schedule. <laughs> I think you just glued to the same seat for several days, but uh, you, you're right about that, especially in the heat. This heat, uh, I've been melting in that seat. So, well, I've been enjoying watching all the games, and it's an exciting time right now for the Mets and for the Yankees too. And with that, we welcome our our Yankee fan, the only one amongst the three of us, and um, he is known for many years working in the classical department at the New York Times, and for writing a few Beatle books, including Got That Something, How the Beatles I Want to Hold Your Hand Changed Everything, and The Beatles from the Cavern to the Rooftop, and coming out December 13th, I think that's the date, Yep, part one of the McCartney Legacy, which he has written with Adrian Sinclair, and um, we are all waiting <laughs> with anticipation for that book and uh you know it's funny i went to amazon just to bring it up and right below your book yours yours, yours is right at the top right below it was tune in <laughs> from mark lewison so back to back you and mark lewison perfect company right there alan cozen welcome thank you ken and hello darren and hello. everyone out there on today's show i thought um we tackle the subject on Lennon and McCartney. This is one that I've been wanting to do for a while. And it's not anything like um, comparing them so much as who you prefer as an artist, who was better. Um, for, for a number of years now, I've realized that the more that you study these two men, there's a lot more similarities between the two of them, I feel anyway, once you study them as musicians and artists, and also as people. 
and how they conducted themselves in public. When she put it all together in one great big ball, when she examined the two of them, there's a lot more similarities, at least in my opinion anyway, than differences. But we're gonna talk about both the similarities and differences between John and Paul in just a few moments. But first, as we always do, we have the latest in Beatle news. And as I'm sure most of you uh, know by now, I certainly hope all of you know, Variety Magazine wrote an article on the forthcoming box set on the Beatles album, Revolver. An official announcement is expected in September. Already, a rumored track list has been getting around. And while it looks to be the real thing, we still have to say, to play it safe, that it's still a rumor. The details of which are that there will be a disc that is the new remix for the album, plus two discs of outtakes, a disc for the mono version of Revolver, and a four-song EP, which has the new 2022 remixes for the single that was recorded at the same time, Paperback Writer and Rain, and there are also mono mixes for both those songs. Nothing has been said as of yet whether or not there will be a Blu-ray, high-resolution, or surround sound. No official release date has been given yet. We've only heard sometime in October. Would either of you like to comment about these rumors and what you think so far? Alan? Um, Giles did go on Twitter and had a link to the Variety article and wrote, hope you like it. So that makes it sound pretty definite, but the contents weren't given in Variety. They've been given on, on Facebook by various people, but, uh, um, but it's definite, obviously, or else Giles wouldn't have said, hope you like it. Um, I do think, you know, there are there certain, I, I, it, I can't wait to hear it. I mean, uh, just that, uh, despite what I'm about to say, which is um, you can fit both the mono and stereo mix of Revolver on one CD and they're given a CD each. And come on, guys. Um, and you could probably fit um, Paperback Writer and Rain on that CD too. Uh, but, and even if not, you could fit it onto one of the other discs. I mean, even if, if it goes on one of the outtake discs, it doesn't matter really. But we're getting five discs that could be, you know, it looks like three discs. Um, uh, I'm sure there will be a Blu-ray. I, I just think that we haven't heard about it and it will you know, be the same thing that the Blu-rays always are of these things, which is a surround mix and a, a high res uh, version of the new mix and maybe a high res version of the original mix, who knows? Um, but uh, anyway, you know, the outtakes, uh, there seems to be a, a lot of uh, outtakes of, of Love You Too um there seem to be a number of outtakes that we've actually already had an anthology or on bootlegs um the or on bootlegs thing i don't know you know i've always said as a as a theoretical uh concept that even if it's out on bootleg i'd be happy to buy a, an official version of it um and it's only because they haven't put out an official version of it that i've got them on bootleg. Um, so the bootleg duplication, okay, can't really complain about that. Uh, I'm not even, even even complaining about the stuff that's in anthology because it'll probably be a different mix and it'll probably be 
revelatory in a different way somehow. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the outtakes, looking forward to the new mix too. Um, supposedly uh, it was, you know, Giles was, was saying months ago <clears throat> that going back earlier than Pepper, he had sort of a problem because of the, the transitional mixes that were done or the way even the basic tracks were recorded with uh, say bass and drums together on a channel and 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 the, the limitations on how he could separate and remix those things um, but he the the reports I've heard are that he was able to use Peter Jackson's mouth system which separates you know use, using artificial intelligence um, and has made a lot of things possible for him that weren't possible when he made those comments so it's all very promising and um, <clears throat> look forward to it. That's interesting With you say that, Alan, because when Peter described the whole mouth system, my mind started to race as to what the possibilities were. It's endless what you could do with that kind of technology and separation of different instrumentations. Um, yeah. I thought about how I could use Mal at home. That's where I went immediately into but. I completely agree with Alan. I was going to say the same exact thing that I, I kind of get the idea of separating certain elements uh, for convenience sake, or dare I even say those of us who are anal retentive, everything has its place. The main album, the mono mix. But when you're talking about, you know, dollars and there's other, you know, there's a book involved. There's, there's, there's the mixes that need to be on a separate disc, the Blu-ray. It could be combined. I, the EP idea bothers me more mm. than um, separating stereo and mono. Um, uh, I don't know. It's a lot easier for me if I had the box set and I wanted, I'm going to listen to the mono mix now to take the mono disc, put it in, then take the main disc and go up to track number 15, you know? So, I mean, that's splitting hairs. What I think they should have done is I don't know how much, how much of a demand or need there is, but getting the US mix involved uh, would then set a precedent. If there's gonna be box sets going back, hearing the U, that would definitely then allow you to get not what came out on the U, the Capitol, the U.S. Uh, albums box set, but more along the lines of what was coming out on those earlier boxes, the Capitol years. They never finished the series with the third volume. You know what I'm saying? To get the U.S. mix of Revolver, but more importantly, Rev, uh, Rubber Soul, which was very different and perhaps even um, include Yesterday and Today uh, in the Revolver box set um, or or another one um so and maybe that still could happen in another way revolver us is very similar it's uk minus three songs but by doing that you'd end up now setting a precedent for what to look forward to in earlier you know box sets uh if there is a need a demand it'd be the third time the us mixes came out the us albums came out although like i said the the, the box set from 2014 was a bit controversial because it was like the standard mixes 
it was the U.S. albums not sounding like the U.S. albums, just that the right. songs were, you know, in the in the right order with the U.S. album packaging. Mm -hmm. um, another uh, uh, random thought about Revolver. Um, yeah, just condensing the discs, lowering the cost. But, you know, uh, they when the Red and Blue albums came out on disc initially, the controversy was the Blue album especially could have fit on one. No, the Red album. The, uh, the, the Red album, rather. Sorry, the Red album would fit on one. But there, you know, there were double albums originally and the Blue had to be two CDs. So to be anal retentive, you make the that part of it I got. And so, you know. Okay. Well, I hadn't thought about the, the, the American mixes, you know, applying that to this whole idea. And I think that probably Universal and, and Apple look at that as something completely separate. Yeah, they could even say we did that, been there, done that. Yeah. And uh, and they'd be right, I guess. Although, again, the capital, do you what is the box? The U.S. albums, it's called. They came out in 2014. To me, that was. I, I mean, it looked good, but it was like, you know, I, I want to hear those bad. What was his name? Dave Dexter. <laughs> Dave Dexter. Yeah. If, if I'm going to listen to these albums, you know, I want to hear them the way I heard them when I was 11 and I was and I had just got Beatles six for the first time. Right. Yeah. Well, the way that I feel, I have very extreme feelings. Um, on the one hand, I take the attitude of at this point, what are we complaining about? I'm happy to get anything. And the Beatles don't owe us a thing. If nothing ever came out ever again on the group or in their solo careers, I feel like I've been spoiled to death. You know, so on the one hand, I'm grateful that anything comes out at this point. But at the same time, I also think, and I used to never feel this way, that everything the Beatles have ever done should come out. <laughs> Every outtake, you know, um, only because they're the Beatles. They're the biggest band there ever was. They're the most influential band that ever was. And I know that's probably never going to happen. So there has to be some kind of compromise. But my main gripe about this whole thing is what the two of you have said. What is this about another four song EP? What a waste of a disc. You know, it's just padding the bill. It's the same thing they did on the Let It Be box set. And, um, and also, you may disagree with me, but I know the mono mixes were important and everything, but why can't people just buy it separately, individually? Why does it have to be put in this box set? Why are you forced to get the mono mixes along with the new remix? You know, I... I Interesting. I'm yeah, controversial and and people say well it's that's the way the beatles listen to it you know but at the same time they were always kept separate you know or in a box set that's why i feel like these box sets should sort of be the definitive catch-all in the case of revolver you get stereo mix you get the mono mix i even i even would consider you know we talked about this i think back with maybe the white album box set we're getting Giles, Ma uh, Giles Martin's modern day remix of these albums. Right. What about the original mix? What about the person that doesn't want that guitar solo brighter than it was um, in 1968, in this case, 66? Um, now, are we, are we getting too redundant? Putting uh, a 2022 mix original stereo mix, original mono mix in the same box. 
I don't think so. Not when there are box sets that are being manufactured where you get the album on vinyl and CD. That's mm -hmm. redundant. Mm -hmm. You know, when you got to spend a hundred bucks, uh, the Beatles haven't done this, but there have been plenty of other artists where I've actually said, you know what? I don't need the double heavyweight vinyl to, uh, if you're giving me everything on disc as well, separate them. I'm a CD person slightly more than vinyl. To me, CDs are superior sound-wise. Here come the emails. Um, but that's redundant. When you're getting the album twice in two different configurations. Well, like in the George Harris and All Things Must Pass uh, big wooden box, you got both the vinyl and the and the CDs. Yeah, well, see, well, that, in, that, in that case, that was you're getting part of his friggin' tr trees on his property. You'd expect <laughs> stuff like that. But, you know, here's some dirt from the backyard. Um uh, and the little cardboard toilet paper rolls last used in the, but you know, when, in the case of <laughs> revolver, you know, all right, you know what, maybe it, if you're going to give us all these discs, treat rain and paperback rider, like they were bonus tracks to the album, separate them with like they did those, um, what was it? The British McCartney CDs that came out in the early nineties. Give us like a 10 second gap of space. So the album, you can have a sense to breathe and paperback writer doesn't immediately come up after tomorrow never knows and blows the whole vibe of the whole thing. Cause it's not supposed to be heard like that. Put the bonus tracks, put the treat them, the singles rather the B side and a side as bonus tracks. Give us the U S mix, give us the original stereo and original mono and give us Giles Martin's updated look at it. So we could hear everything brighter and a little, you know, a little different. And then you give us, you could fit all these surround sound mixes. A lot of them seem like they could fit on, on a one Blu-ray disc because you could get a lot on a Blu-ray audio disc. Right. If I'm not mistaken, much more than a conventional CD. Should point out about this EP idea with the, you know, four track kind of things. Um, Apple. It's not very green, you know. Like it's one thing to put out a CD with that's that's packed with music, but to put out a CD that's mostly empty, that's kind of a waste of materials. It's kind of a waste of carbon footprint. You should reconsider this. <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, I, I have a feeling that probably once the entire Beatles catalog has gone through with giving the archival box sets going all the way back to Please Please Me. They're probably gonna remaster the original mixes of the albums all over again. You should actually do it periodically to make it sound even better than it was before since the last time was 2009. It's a long time now, actually. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if there's money to be made there and if the, if the, the music can sound even better than it did in 2009, do it. So. Now that we've really thrown lots of criticisms and critiques and whatnot, we could forget about getting our free promo copies. <laughs> well, you know, still, like I said, I'm glad to see this come out anyway. I'm happy to see any Beatles product come out. So along with the buzz surrounding Revolver, there hasn't been any official word yet about the rumored sometime in New York City box set, which, if true would be coming out on John's birthday, October 9th. At least that's the rumor. 
Now, you might remember that back in 2012, a compilation came out of Christmas songs from various artists called Holidays Rule. Well, just announced is that this compilation is coming out for the very first time on vinyl. This is the collection that featured Paul McCartney's version of the Christmas classic, The Christmas Song, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire. It also had the group The Shins covering Paul's Christmas classic, Wonderful Christmas Time. This collection is due out September 30th and is now available for pre-order as a two LP set pressed on translucent red vinyl housed in a gatefold jacket. And you know, next year, ho uh, Holidays Rule Two yep. is coming out on green vinyl, the second volume. Hey, if there's money to be made, they'll do yeah, it. This is true. And I'll be, I'll be buying them. There's also going to be a limited clear with red and green splatter variant Ooh. available exclusively at the Craft Recordings store. You can go to their website, craftrecordings.com, and you can order it right on the website. BBC News is reporting that a new statue of Beatles manager Brian Epstein has been unveiled in front of a large crowd in Liverpool. It is located near the former site of Epstein's NEMS record shop in Whitechapel. The statue marked the 55th anniversary of Brian's passing on August 27th, 1967. Jane Robbins is one of the statue's sculptors, and she also happens to be Paul McCartney's cousin. Paul said of the statue that its depiction is, quote, dead good-like. Dead good-like? Yep, those are the words. Paul, Paul said that or Yoda? <laughs> Paul said, I mean, could he, dead, he could have probably come up with a better word than dead good. Like, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> Bruce Spizer's book on rubber soul and revolver has an official release date of October 10th on Amazon. But I have been told you can buy his book now on his website, which is beetle.net, and it will be sent to you now in the mail. You can get the book before it comes out on October the 10th. Okay. Again, that's beetle.net. Speaking of books, there this is definitely front page news. With only the new book on Paul McCartney from Alan and Adrian Sinclair rivaling it. The new book, You Dirty Old Man, the authorized biography of Wilfred Bramble. This is by David Clayton. <laughs> Bramble is described as one of Britain's most loved and complex character actors. Along with his classic role as Paul's grandfather in the film A Hard Day's Night, Bramble became a household name when he played the role of Albert Ladysmith Steptoe in the British TV show Steptoe and Son. Alongside fame and fortune, you dirty old man reveals how Bramble suffered unbelievable personal heartache battling an inner turmoil that eventually drove him to drink as his marriage collapsed in the most deceitful circumstances imaginable. His torment led to a secretive life off camera where he did everything possible to stay out of the public eye. This okay. features original interviews with film directors Richard Lester, Terence Davies, and Tony Palmer, as well as recollections from his own family members. The book has already been released. I can just see it. Alan's book, Wilfred Bramble, battling each other. Best mm -hmm. oh, uh, Is that uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears' former lead singer that wrote the 
uh, Bramble uh, biography. What's the author's name? Uh, David Clayton. <laughs> not David Clayton Thomas, no. Oh, okay. Sorry. All right. Another book of interest coming out. It's on January the 15th is Peter Asher, A Life in Music by David Jacks, covering every facet of Asher's career from recording artist to producer and from managing artists as well. Asher's 60-year career has been extraordinary, and he's produced artists from nearly every genre of music, a truly remarkable life covered in this book. Many thanks, as always, to John Bazzini for providing all this news about new books of interest to Beatle fans. Uh, coming out on September the 23rd is the very last studio album to be recorded by the late Dr. John. Oh, yeah. The album's, the album's called Things Happen That Way. And on it, he covers the Traveling Wilbury song, End of the Line. Huh. And that version also includes Aaron Neville singing on the recording. We have uh, a couple of passings here to note. Um, the death of Jerry Allison at age 82. Allison was the original drummer in Buddy Holly's band, The Crickets. The other original members along with Buddy were bassist Joe B. Malden and Nicky Sullivan on guitar. Sullivan quit the band after just one year and he died in 2004. Malden was with The Crickets from 1957 through 1960 and for a long ride after that, 1976 until his death in 2015. Jerry Allison was the mainstay in the band throughout its entire run, despite several personnel changes. Of course, we all know that Buddy Holly was a, a major influence on the Beatles in many ways, a complete package, singer, songwriter, guitarist, and even towards the end of his life involved with producing. And as often has been told, the Beatles got their name from Buddy's band, The Crickets, using the name of an insect and inserting the A in the name, referencing a musical beat. Jerry Allison was also important because he co-wrote some of Buddy's hits, That'll Be the Day and Peggy Sue. The Beatles made their demo of That'll Be the Day at Percy Phillips Studio in Liverpool, along with their original song of In Spite of All the Danger. John Lennon covered Peggy Sue on his rock and roll album and Paul McCartney acquired the music publishing catalog of Buddy's and in 1989, the Crickets released an album called T-Shirt, for which the title track had involvement from Paul McCartney. He ran a contest through his uh, quarterly magazine Club Sandwich, asking his fans to submit a song for the Crickets to record for their new album. And one lucky person, Jim Imray, got to have the band perform his song T-Shirt and Paul played piano contributing backing vocals, and he produced the track. The album had Jerry Allison and Joe B. Maudlin, Mal, Malden playing on it, and Gordon Payne as lead vocalist. With Jerry Allison's passing, it means all the original members of the Crickets are sadly no longer with us. And uh, finally, the Canada-based animator, Gerald uh, Potterton, has died. He was known for his work on the Beatles animated film Yellow Submarine and the 1991 cult classic Heavy Metal. Born in London, he won acclaim for the Liverpool sequence as shown early in Yellow Submarine while the song Eleanor Rigby was playing. 
The National Film Board of Canada announced that Gerald died in a Quebec hospital, saying in a statement, Gerald came to Canada and the NFB to be part of a new wave of storytelling, one that was fresh and irreverent, and he brought great wit and creativity to every project. He was also a builder helping to lay foundation for today's independent Canadian animation industry with Potterton Productions. He was an exceptional artist and a truly nice man. Potterton was 91. All right, that's all the news that I have for you this time. As I said before, our show this time is about Lennon and McCartney, exploring the similarities and differences in both men. And I thought it would be a great idea to do this because, you know, so much has been said through the years about how different the two of them were. But at the same time, the contrast between the two of them really helped to make the Beatles interesting. All four of the Beatles made major contributions, no doubt, to the band, as did George Martin, Brian Epstein, everybody around them that worked closely with them. But I thought that we'd all talk about, um, and, and I came up with my own list, as the two of you had, of how the two of them are actually, in some ways, maybe more similar than different. Maybe the two of you disagree with me. I don't know. I'm going into this blind, not knowing what the two of you have come up with. <laughs> so um, why don't we start with Alan? Let's start with similarities and what we came up with between John and Paul. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I I sort of see them as, as actually quite different. But for similarities, I mean, in personality, what's all, one thing that's often mentioned is the deaths of their mothers at a young age. And that's something that at least uh, they had in common. Um, they already were close friends by the time John's mother died. Uh, so can't say that that really brought them together. Um, but they could they could sympathize over it. Mm. Um, they both uh, were drawn to basically the same early rock and roll. I mean, they both were Elvis fanatics, um, Buddy Holly fanatics. Uh, their, their formative influences were the same, even though their musical styles were sort of different from the beginning and became even more different as they went on. Um, there is, okay, this one is, is sort of hard to describe, but there is an, an interesting thing that they shared, which is a dichotomy between being supremely ambitious and supremely lazy. <laughs> you don't think of them as you don't think of McCartney particularly as lazy. Uh, you know, this is a guy who's constantly working, uh, constantly doing, you know, project after project, some of which we don't even find out about for a long time. Um, but yet there are certain things like, you know, and you could argue whether this is laziness or just a, a different approach to things. But for instance, his idea about lyrics not being important. And, uh, you know, if you, if you don't just sort of get it, you know, the first time you write it down that it's, you know, it's not necessarily worth laboring over. Um, you got the impression that Lenin labored over lyrics 
a lot more than Paul does, you know, and yet, uh, you know, one thing I found when working on the book is that if you look at Paul's lyrics closely, despite the fact that he said that, there's quite often a lot more going on than appears on the surface. Um, with Lenin, the laziness is more like things like, uh, you know, if, if, if they didn't have to go into the studio to do an album, he'd happily just sit home and, you know, do whatever else he was doing. And it was really Paul that would draw them in. Um, and also in John's case, the laziness, so to speak, uh, ended up sort of inspiring a certain kind of creativity, not even just among the Beatles, but among EMI's engineering staff. The, the, the best example being that he loved to double track his voice, but hated to bother singing it twice. So, you know, uh, ADT, uh, automated double tracking was invented entirely so that John wouldn't have to bother singing it twice. Um, but then Paul used it plenty too. You know, I, I suspect that Paul was perfectly happy singing it twice, but once that capability was there, uh, you know, he used it as well. And in fact, you know, in, in when he was recording Ram uh, and working on it in LA with uh, the engineer, Eirik the Norwegian, uh, Eirik Weinberg, Wangberg, uh, he said at a certain point, you know, can we just, can we put ADT on, can we just use the ADT rather than double track something? And in, in that case, it wasn't because he was too lazy to double track it. It was because it was going to be sort of a, an improvised scat vocal. And you would have to then memorize the improvisation, memorize the nonsense syllables that he was doing. And, you know, there's no need for that if you can use ADT, but mm -hmm. Eric said, um, What's ADT? Because this was a proprietary EMI uh, technique. Uh, they ended up calling up EMI and getting uh, Ken Townsend to describe to them how to how to do it. Um, and even at that, uh, I mean, it's really sort of a, an aside. But uh, even at that, they weren't able to use the ADT because you need an extra track for that, and they didn't have an extra track. So what he ended up doing is finding little spaces on all of the, you know, 16 track master, I think it was, uh, where, you know, the first three words can be on this track, the second three words can be on this track. And Eric had to sort of punch in real fast, but Paul still had to learn the nonsense syllables and, and the scat melody. So that was sort of the opposite of lazy, but he would have, he would have used the ADT if it, if it could have been done. Uh, he just didn't want to bounce down to free up a track. So let's see what else. Um, Okay, here's another um, difference, but also similarity in a certain way. Um, we know that John was really into doing political songs at, you know, the late end of the Beatles time in the early end of the solo time. Uh, and if he had a, a political cause that he wanted to sing about, he would make a point of doing it. Whereas Paul really didn't like political topical stuff. Um, he gave interviews saying that he, th he finds protest songs kind of boring. He didn't want to do it. And yet when Bloody Sunday happened in Ireland, he was right there. And, uh, you know, he wrote a song the next day, went in like a day or two after that, 
to record it, you know, white hot. Now, some of that may have been influenced by John, um, but also in a way you could look at it as, as a similarity, you know, that if you feel deeply about something, you want to do it, even if it's something you don't normally do, in his case, political songs. Mm. Um, he just wanted to go in and get it out. Uh, now, partly it, it may have also had to do with some taunting that John had done shortly before that. Um, uh, John compared him to this person named Mary Whitehouse, who was a, a British uh, busybody uh, who you know, was always saying that, you know, the British morals were being corrupted by British TV shows and pop music and all that stuff. And John, just to needle Paul at, at a certain point said, you know, your politics are like Mary Whitehouse. And then, you know, it's possible that, you know, being stung by that and, and then having Bloody Sunday happen, Paul is saying, you know, I'll show you. Um, and sat down and did give Ireland back to the Irish. Uh, but, um, but in a way you, you still could, could see that as a similarity because John wrote two songs about the situation in Ireland, um, and where John got instant karma out almost immediately. He sat on the, the Irish songs and, you know, until, uh, it wasn't until like, um, I think September they came out in England. I think they were out a few months earlier in the US on sometime in New York City. Um, but he didn't do anything to rush them out. Paul wanted to rush them out. He wanted it to be like instant karma and felt that it's more important than instant karma in a way. You know, it's this is this is a situation happening now. He spoke out about it, he gave interviews. He uh when the BBC banned it, he chafed against the band. Um and in another in, in another way, you know, John's stuff didn't get banned nearly as much as Paul's did. You know, Paul had several things banned by the BBC. Give Ireland back to the Irish, uh, high, high, high. You know, uh, if if not for Mary had a little lamb in between there, <laughs> uh, you know, which is a difference from John. I don't think John would have ever done something like Mary had a little lamb, but I don't know, maybe I'm missing something that you will come up with. Um, did beautiful boy, you know, yeah. you know, uh, they both in a way did songs for their kids, you know, they were different kinds of songs, but nevertheless, you know, there was, there was that, uh, they both, you know what, they both also, it, it, it presented itself in a completely different way, but in the way that John was always with Yoko and wanted to be seen as John and Yoko, one word, um, Paul in a way was that way with Linda, you know? Linda didn't, didn't have to be in Wings. She didn't really want to be in Wings. Um, Paul roped her into that and because he wanted them always to be together and, and that aspect of it, she liked. So, um, so there is that, the, you know, Paul and Linda, John and Yoka, that, that they, they, they did it differently. They presented themselves differently about it. Paul did it in terms of, you know, sort of home and hearth, warm family, kids, all that stuff. And John and Yoko did it more as we're both avant-garde artists, but, you know, fundamentally it was the same thing. I was so. going to ask you about that because going back to 
the very beginning when we started doing the show with me and Steve Marinucci, sometimes when we had authors on in particular, Steve would always ask this question. Do you think that Paul brought Linda into Wings because John did everything with Yoko? Was he trying to copy John in any way? You know, and I see a similarity there because John and Yoko were so creative together in every, in every way. And each other's music, John went and fully supported all of Yoko's artwork, you know, and um, what Paul did with Linda, you know, he wanted to be with Linda all the time. He could have just had Linda and the kids go on tour while Wings, you know, is touring the world or wherever and Linda not be in the band. But she was in the band and she contributed her keyboard playing and she contributed her harmonies. And, you know, I'm sure you're going to go into detail about the songwriting of Paul and Linda uh, in your book. But <laughs> Paul did say that she did contribute somewhat. She, she did influence some of the songwriting there. So they were very close together. And yeah. in a way, you know, just as much as John supported Yoko, Paul supported all of Linda's endeavors. For photography work. Photography, yeah. The, the, the food. Yeah. So there's a strong similarity there, but does it all start because John was so close and wanted to do everything with Yoko? Your opinion on this? I don't think so. I, it, it's possible, but I think it came from a, from a different direction. <clears throat> and in both cases, but especially in Paul's case, well, I don't know if you can even say that. In both cases, they were broadly attacked by, you know, fans um, who felt, you know, in John's case that um, Yoko, you know, led him down the uh, garden path to the evils of avant-gardeness. And in, uh, in, in the case of Linda, it wasn't even that, that she was you know, a malign influence on him. They just didn't feel that she was good enough to be in the band and, uh, and attack that. Um, and both of them nevertheless sort of stuck by them and said, this is, but this is what I want to do. You know, and Linda too, you know, Linda, you know, as she said, we, we have, we have some, some of the best stuff in the book is quotes from Linda, I've got to say. I mean, it, you know, there's one point where she's talking about all the criticism that she's taking and, and she said, yeah, Paul, Paul said, do you want to be in the band? And I said, okay, I must have been out of my mind, <laughs> you know, like that. I mean, you know, and, and um, she was, she was aware that she was doing this. She was getting a lot of criticism. She was doing it because Paul wanted her there. And if Paul wanted her there, she wanted to be there, you know, um, and she, you know, I have to say it like never got better. She took the criticism for her entire life in right. a way like Yoko still is, you know, John isn't even here anymore. We still hear all about, you know, Yoko. Um, but Linda, you know, if you listen, remember in 1989, I mean, that's pretty late. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's uh, less than a decade before she died and that soloed uh, vocal came out of, you know, from Hey Jude, um, you know, people were still sort of, you know, on her case. Uh, so, you know, she endured quite a lot, um, as did Yoko, 
and as did Paul and John on their behalf. So that's similarity. I mean, you know, whether or not Paul brought Linda in because John and Yoko um, is almost irrelevant because it took on a life of its own, you know, and he stuck with it and that's what he wanted and that's what John wanted. So, so there's a similarity in a way, you know. It's well put. By the way, I should point out that um... You know, since I've had this idea to talk about the two of them and how similar they are, um, Madeline Baccaro, who we just had as a guest who wrote the book on Yoko, she sent me this quote from Linda saying, you know, but John and Paul are a lot more alike than you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that that just kind of put the bug in me again to do something like like this kind of show. Do you have any other similarities? I think for the moment that that probably is it for me. Um, you know, they were basically very strong-willed people. I mean, there's a similarity as different as that sometimes made them seem because they were strong-willed with different opinions about how things should be. You know, if you look at the, the whole Alan Klein thing, you know, Alan Klein versus the Eastman's, all that, I mean, they, they were willing to compromise when they felt that compromise could be a good thing, but when they didn't, they both stuck to their guns, um, you know, really strongly. I mean, you know, it was, was, was very hard to sort of move them from a position that they believed in. So that's a similarity too. Okay, some good ones right there, Alan. Darren, how about you? I've always felt that <clears throat> on the surface, there were more differences. Uh, than similarities between the two of them, but that's what made them work as as friends, as as a as a songwriting team, and as musicians. It was the differences that attract. I really do think that um, sometimes the best pairings are when the individuals are very different. Uh, uh, this is, I mean, some you know, um, it's. I, in a person, for a personal, um, which nobody watching this would understand, and it's sort of odd that I would bring this up, but like I sort of look at myself and my wife. We're uh, a good couple together because we bring two completely different personalities and, mo and ways of thinking and doing things together, mm -hmm. uh, and they feed off each other. And in the case of John and Paul, I always looked at John as being the true teddy boy and paul had the tendencies of being that but paul was more the good kid that would go to the store and you know buy milk and not disappear uh because he couldn't get the brand cigarettes that he wanted when he went to get the milk um but yet those the fact that they were both like that the both they had their own ways uh of their own personalities that made that made the like the that made the picture whole. Um, and John, uh, you know, Paul points out that example. And when it came to songwriting, like we're getting better, Paul getting better, it's getting better. And John can't get much worse. Well, there, there, the differences really worked together. Wouldn't have worked if they both thought the same way. Uh, it's getting better. It's getting better. Oh, it's, yeah, it's great, isn't it? You know, that doesn't work. Um, I always looked at John as more of the angrier of the two and 
Paul more of the mild-mannered, maybe capable of managing his emotions better, could very well have been um, uh, a very emotional time. Uh, he could have been an emotional time bomb, Paul, with certain things. We don't know that. He's suppressed it, managed it. John's emotions he wore on his sleeve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, um, even when the breakup came, when the, when the Beatles broke up, Paul was, Paul was quiet for the most part about it. John was the one after the breakup happened that would throw Paul under the bus and bash uh, a new McCartney song, would criticize, would be outspoken. His words and his comments would have barbs to them. Mm-hmm. I would say that that wasn't the case with Paul. If anything, Paul said nothing in a nutshell about the relationship. So again, opposites here um, in the way they dealt with things. Um, I, I, li- I like what, what Alan mentioned about them both being um, lazy and yet at the same time motivated. It sounded to me like once John was active again in 1980, he got extremely motivated. We heard that the plans were already in place for the follow-up to Double Fantasy. Double Fantasy no sooner came out. And the impression we get is that Milk and Honey was not going to be all that far behind. Mm-hmm. And a tour was coming. And, 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 and he had these ideas that were flying out of his head. And let's, there was an eagerness there. Um, and we've seen Paul do me like that, but we've also seen them, you know, we've also seen um, instances where I think John lets some subpar material go out. Uh, maybe something could have been written better or produced a little better. Um, and and um, McCartney, I think, it, I think you can make a very strong case that any laziness as an artist is in his lyric writing because we've heard Paul write stuff that is powerful lyrically. Yeah. Uh, and then we see things that, um, what, was, what was I listening to re- re- recently with McCartney? I mean, even though, even lyrics on McCartney 3 compared to some of what he's saying on Egypt Station, two, two albums that were side by side, they almost seem like they were written by different lyricists in some instances. Uh, McCartney could be extremely lazy with his with his songwriting, with his lyric writing, uh, and I felt that uh, sometimes John came off as maybe being a bit lazy with the production of his records, or um, you know, this, it was a bit of a sloppiness from here to here, which was endearing, but that could be perceived as laziness. So, I mean, really, in a nutshell, I could randomly pick out and repeat things that Alan said and. Um, I've always looked at them as being mostly opposite, but that's what that's what made it work. I mean, um, John always had the chip on his shoulder, like I said, and Paul was the more uh, personable, agreeable, uh, calmer, mm-hmm. rational uh, individual. Um, so really, I mean, that's where I actually feel it worked for them. Um, similarities, well, I guess in some instances, I look about 
I look at them after the breakup. At the beginning, it seemed like uh, John was all for the breakup happening and the Beatles ending and it was over. Um, the dream is over. It was Lennon who suggested it first. It was Lennon who got mad that McCartney went public mm-hmm. and made it a news item. I mean, is, it, is it that important, John, that you be the one to break the Beatles up? You know, because John was angry that it was McCartney that looked like uh, the guy that broke him up. Um, but then years later, we start hearing by the mid 70s about how uh, they were getting along. They were hanging out together. And you almost get the impression it would have been it was John who wanted a reunion to happen more than Paul. Paul didn't need it as much anymore. And there, Paul was the confident one with wings. Uh, and John had doubts. He had, we know about his, his, uh, his lack of self-confidence sometimes. Hmm. So their, their, their opinions about where they stood and where the Beatles stood had reversed by the middle 70s. Uh, whereas John seemed to maybe need it more than Paul would have needed it, but it never happened. I don't know if I agree with that necessarily, but... Um, I'm sorry, you don't? No. I mean, I know that Paul was disturbed by the constant Beatle questions in the 70s. But then you also hear about when he signed his contract with CBS, that there was a provision in the contract that, they, that he would be allowed to record with the other Beatles again. So, you know... He, not, I'm not saying that Paul was... was against that happening it just felt to me that john hit a point where it seemed to me just reading between the lines and things that we've heard through the years and interview segments maybe even from later in the 70s where john seemed more more willing to talk about it and more open-minded to it happening paul didn't really need it to happen and didn't unless pressured talk about it he had wings he had a lot more going for him uh-huh. um well it's my perception now, now yeah. but again i i see where you're coming from though ken john always you know depending upon his mood he could be completely against the beatles reunion and then warm up to it you yeah. know it's contradictory he was always like that yeah and you just don't know overall i mean i'm sure that's all part of what made John who he was. Mm-hmm. And I still believe that when he gave interviews, he was honest in all of his opinions for the moment. Yeah. <laughs> Every time right. he said that. But you never know. Nobody knows what would have happened had John not been killed. Although that's a whole other, you know, topic. Because I used to say all the time that I don't think the Beatles would ever have reunited all four of them. But then again, if the three of them got together for the Beatles anthology without John there, if John was alive, would the four of them have done it? I yeah, think, he, I'm sure he would have. You know, for something like that, something that special. There is a common kind of assumption that when it came as to being individual musicians, that Paul was more of the melody guy uh-huh. and John was more of the lyrics guy, the mm-hmm. word guy. And you could come up with examples that contradicted that. And I know peop- some people have said that's absolutely not the truth. They were both strong in both departments. Um, and I feel like, no, I think that was the truth. I think McCartney was the 
was was when push came to shove was going to come up with the better melody than john would more times than not it was going to be the reverse uh with the lyrics john being the stronger of the two and that is kind of mirrors my thinking about their personalities that more times than not they really were different you know opposites they were different but that's what made it special um and it wouldn't have been you know it it might not have worked as well if they were both like two you know similar i mean you could you could just see mccartney i mean in 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 the get back movie at the very beginning when you sense the tension in twickenham john shutting down john goes quiet john seemed to be turned off and was like you could she could come up with a whole bunch of places he'd rather be than be right there Mm -hmm. and paul turned it up a notch and tried even harder to make you know um was more enthusiastic about the whole thing um two different uh two different uh, approaches uh to that period of time in their lives ultimately for at least a brief period of time they did end up coming as one unit as we see later on in that month later in the movie I actually did sort of semi just lose my train of thought, but I think I got back to where I needed to be there. You and I, I think we see things very differently. This, you know, I agree with some of the things that you have to say, but I do believe that when it comes to lyrics, what John said about Paul is true. He could be a great lyricist when he wants to, when he puts the effort. Yeah, he had the same ability to write great lyrics as John did. It all depends upon whether or not he wanted to do it. Yeah, maybe that's actually a better way of putting it. They were both capable of doing what the other one did best. And maybe in Paul's case, it was laziness when it came to lyrics. Maybe John wasn't quite the strong melody guy. that Mac- I don't think anybody is equal to McCartney when it comes to, you know, composing music and melodies and I think McCartney's the best, period, regardless of who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but John, I think in the, when it comes to words, John's right. Yeah, Paul could, Paul could keep up with him. But Paul would let his, you know, kind of... Paul would... What's a good way of putting it without saying Paul would just sit back and not try? Because I'm not thinking he didn't try, but... The effort was never 100% always with Paul. Oh, it depends upon... As a lyric writer. You know, each one is a different case. But I'll tell you something, the lyrics book, when it came out from Paul, changed my head a bit. Because there are certain times in, in his songs where you think that what he's writing about is just, you know, words that fit the melody and they make sense and, you know, it serves a purpose, but there's more of a meaning behind it. And I wouldn't have thought that way had that book not come out so it could be that his lyrics mean more than we're led to believe you know you tend to pick on certain lyrics through his career and not know the hidden meanings behind some of them like dustbin lid or you know salamander or words like that Mm -hmm. but um you know the more that you learn you realize that there's more to his lyrics than we're aware and yet there are times when I do feel that he is lazy with the lyrics. 
but um, I do agree with the way that John saw him in that regard. And I do think that John was just as capable for writing great melodies as Paul was. But um, it, there, there was such a, an easiness with Paul that he, it's, it just, it didn't take that much effort for him to come up with great melodies. It just oozes out of him. It's That's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah. You know, Paul needed, Paul was also the, the because Paul tended to be more active and was the, you know, uh, wasn't generally speaking a lazy artist. Um, he might be, again, he may have been lazy at times with lyric writing again, or maybe some other aspect, but all told he was not a overall a lazy artist. Paul also, as a result of that, needed a filter more than John did, I think. And that's where John stepped in. He was Paul's filter when they were working together. Uh, and bogey music would not have come out as a Beatles song if the Beatles stayed together another 10 years. You know, that would not have probably would not have happened, that song. Nor would John have brought a bogey music. And I love bogey music. Don't uh -huh. get me wrong. John would not have brought a bogey music to the table. You know, and some people who don't like that uh, aspect of McCartney's work might cite a song like Bogey Music as an example of Paul being a lazy writer. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, um, how do you know how John would have felt about Bogey Music? He seemed to like the studio version of Coming Up, which was very quirky, and he liked experimentation. So you don't really know how he would have felt about that. And at the same time, if you're talking about filtering, Notice how the other Beatles didn't want What's the New Mary Jane to be released by the Beatles. So there you go there. Valid points. They also didn't want Cold Turkey to be released. As right. the and that was a great song. You know, I, I wouldn't have minded the Beatles doing Cold Turkey. Yeah. But um, so, yes, they, they needed each other to bounce off each other and filter each other. But that's not to say that, you know, every decision that they made, you could have predicted or that they were the right ones. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's one thing I, I wanted to um, note here is that both Darren and I have been talking in terms of Paul being lazy in terms of lyrics. And, you know, maybe in a way, neither of us are being fair there because uh, Paul, you know, basically has said he just doesn't put as much stock in lyrics as other people do, as John did. So is that laziness or is that, uh, you know, um, he places a different value on it than, you know, other people. And, you know, and, and, and uh, it, it's maybe just simply a value judgment rather than, than laziness. So maybe, maybe I should just sort of amend that slightly. Um, whereas John really was concerned with lyrics, Paul was less concerned with them. And then, you know, taking into account what both I and Ken have said about, you know, looking into his lyrics, like Ken mentioned the lyrics book, um, sort of changing his mind about, uh, you know, what some of these things mean and whether they actually mean anything. And turns out that there are meanings that he has that we didn't necessarily know about. So partly, you know, our impression about Paul's lyrics is Paul's fault for coming out and saying, yeah, I don't care about lyrics that much, you know, but maybe he does. And he's just sort of fending off the criticism by saying, yeah, that's just not what's important to me. 
Mm -hmm. He doesn't care about lyrics that much. Why would he put out a book of his lyrics? Yeah, yeah. You say there's <laughs> some. Yeah, but, uh, but, uh, but the, there's a lot not in the lyric book where he skims out the lesser songs and mm -hmm. you know and puts puts the cream of the crop in there and gives off the impression. Look, mm -hmm. I am the lyricist. Oh, there's a lot of really good songs he left out of there. He should do a volume two. <laughs> but you know it's like what you and me can right now this is what kind of what i'm talking about with john and paul we are john and paul no okay uh <laughs> your opinions tend to differ from mine in this show a little bit about how we view john and paul another example would be our love of ringo's music uh -huh. you have embraced virtually all of in one way or another all of ringo's albums um and i have sometimes been critical of certain ones and listening to you and your opinions have made me listen to these records differently mm -hmm. and have influenced me positively and uh and have really helped my enjoyment of these albums in a way i uh, probably never 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 would have occurred to me here are ways of thinking fairly differently about a topic have, have ended up benefiting at least me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's the same thing here with John, um, who was that kind of like a, a curmudgeon and Paul who was, you know, perceived as being the happy go lucky fun beetle and it put them together and you have a happy curmudgeon. Uh, you, you know, you have, you know, a perfect kind of matching there. Yeah, well, that's the beauty of podcasts is to have different opinions and we all can influence each other. You know, mm. I'm sure the two of you, the two of you have said things that have made me think differently about certain things. Same thing with my other podcast show. But um, I will say that the more Wrapping that I up this love fest now, <laughs> no. um, the more that I think about the two of them, the more that I see similarities. So I thought that I would list what I put together here, but some of them are fairly obvious and you may not even think they're worth bringing up. But um, first of all, they're both geniuses. <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. no doubt about it. They're both absolutely brilliant at what they do. Um, I would say they're both type A personalities. They're both leaders. Um, I think in every group, just about every group, you have to have people who take charge and lead and others that are happy to be in the group in a, in a, I don't want to say a lesser role, but I think that George and Ringo fit John and Paul perfectly. And even though George was very frustrated, especially towards the end, as he was getting better and better with his songwriting and he wanted his songwriting to be noticed more, he didn't want to be the leader. He didn't want to be what John was or Paul was, you know? I think that, um, you know, John and Paul were the leaders of that group and, like you were saying, Alan, that that Paul was the one who had to get the band together and to, you know, if John was ever lazy, he was the one that rang up all the others. Let's get into the studio. He's the one that started new projects for them, um, even though you watch the Get Back, Let It Be film and Paul is saying to John, I'm not that comfortable being the de facto leader, you know, but the two of them were. And, you know, I don't think you could have seen George or Ringo in that role within that band so i think they're similar in that regard we just touched on this i think they're both great lyricists but like john said paul is a great lyricist when he wants to be yeah um 
both capable of writing great love songs and rockers. This whole idea that John was the rocker and Paul was the, the balladeer. Well, sometimes they were. It's Paul true. Yeah. Out there skeleton. At the conception, I think. Yeah. Paul gave us Helter Skelter. He gave us I'm Down. He gave us I Saw Her Standing There. You know, there's, there's a lot of great rockers in the Beatles catalog. And then carrying that into his solo career. And John, come on, some of the best ballads in the Beatles are In My Life. And um, If I Fell. If I Fell. I think Julia is very underrated. Beautiful song. Across the Universe. And in his solo career. Look at uh, Woman and, and Oh My Love and Jealous Guy and Love. You know, those are stereotypes that people have been mentioning all these years about the two of them, and they don't benefit either one of them. They're both great at what they do. Um, they're both great singers. They're two of the greatest rock singers of all time. Um, both married non-British women. <laughs> you think about it. They ended up, you know, John marrying Yoko and and... Paul marrying and Linda, and now Nancy. Um, both married women that they allowed to be very influential in their lives and collaborated with creatively. You know, I think Yoko really influenced John and in turning him onto the avant-garde world in a, a completely different way of thinking in conceptual art. Um, you know, the, the life that Paul and Linda had and how much they enjoyed you know, protecting animals and how important that was and the vegetarian lifestyle and the closeness of the family and all that. Well, I think Paul was always very comfortable being a family man from the very beginning. There is a difference between the two of them. John used to be jealous of the fact that Paul would, you know, pick up a baby and cuddle him and, you know, and John couldn't be as affectionate, but he learned that later on with Sean. But um, yeah, uh, like I said, John and Yoko, Paul and Linda, both working together creatively, both married women that they presented as talents in their own rights. Okay, Paul, like I was saying, he would always support Linda with her photography work, with um, the vegetarian meals. Um, and there were times when Linda gave interviews completely on her own with Paul in the background, you know, behind the screen. <laughs> He didn't want to take any attention away from Linda because he knew that if the two of them were together, it could very easily turn into a Paul McCartney interview. Uh, both John and Paul are very prolific as songwriters. You know, you did have that five-year gap when John took uh, um, didn't release anything. But I think at any given time, despite what you hear about him losing his muse, he wrote songs when he felt like writing songs. He spent the last five years of his life raising Sean, um, doing some cooking, baking bread. It might have been overdone about the baking bread, vacationing, watching television a lot. He did what he wanted to do. I don't think that he couldn't write then. And we do know from all the bootlegs and the lost linen tapes, it's a whole pile of songs that he was writing in the second half of, of the 70s. And even some in, in the early 70s that didn't get released. Whenever he wanted to, if he really put the effort in, he could have written at any given time. I don't think there ever was a writer's block with John. And what can you say about Paul? How much pro more prolific can you be than Paul McCartney? Um, like you were saying, Alan, similar influences, 50s rock and roll, and all the, the, the big name rock and rollers. Um, 
and I also do believe that that both John and Paul liked pre-rock music and the standards. And Paul mentioned that when Kisses on the Bottom came out and he would cite a couple of songs that John liked that were not rock songs before rock and roll. And that showed up in their music too, because anytime that you had these introductions in their songs in the Beatles that were separate from the rest of the song, like the beginning of If I Fell or um, Do You Want to Know a Secret? That was influenced by pre-rock and roll music. Right. Um, both have big egos and yet are very insecure. And I see that a lot in people that have egos. Mm -hmm. I'm not being, trying to be critical of them, but you could be the most talented person in the world and still be insecure. <laughs> you know, and I think as, as, as Paul has had so much success in his career, and I'm sure he could be content with all that he's achieved, there's a part of him that still wants more. You know, um, I'm reminded of uh, Paul talking recently about one time John said to him, do you think I'm going to be remembered when I'm gone? Like, what a ridiculous thing. <laughs> yeah, of course. Paul said, of course, you're going to be remembered when you're gone. But um, I mean, John, John was always bothered by the fact that Paul kept banging out so many songs and he would write a few and he and Paul would come into the studio with more. You know, I think that that kind of affected him. Um, whereas Yoko, I believe, gave John a lot of confidence and made him feel, you know, you're great on your own. And Linda did the same thing for Paul, I think, you know, mm -hmm. it both helped John and Paul become, you know, a bit more independent, realizing that they're talented completely by themselves. Um, they both were involved with artwork beyond songwriting with painting and drawing. And um, yeah, and you mentioned that both John and Paul lost their mothers at an early age. And I think though that there is a difference there because Paul still came from a very adjusted family life. You know, he was always surrounded by his father, his brother, aunts and uncles. And then John had that too, but his mother and father abandoned him. So that always kind of affected John. But I, I still think there was some kind of bond there that they felt because, you know, John lost his mother when he was, what, 17. Paul lost his when he was 14. They can relate on that level. Um, they both show concerns about events going on in the world, both very charitable, both ambitious. You know, for as much as John said that, you know, he cared more about what he was saying and with his music, I know that Paul was also quick to point out that, uh, you know, John would complain about when Brian had them wear the suits and Paul would say, well, I don't remember John complaining about it. He did whatever he had to do at the time because it was very important for, for John for the Beatles to make it. Mm -hmm. They both were extremely ambitious in that regard. So, um, you know, those are the similarities that I found. Do you want to talk any more about the differences? Either one of you? I think. I mean, I feel like I've pretty much expressed more differences and, and have kind of exhausted 
you know, without without for fear of repeating myself. Yeah, I just have a few when it comes to different. There, there are some similarities that are also differences. Um, if you think about, you know, John wanting to sort of, you know, break the mold and push into other things like doing revolution number nine, wanting revolution number nine to be a single, um, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, wanting to do, you know, a, a song like Strawberry Fields was really completely different than anything they had done up to that point. Um, you know, you didn't listen to many of their lyrics and say, what the hell is that about? You know, uh, without thinking that it also isn't, you know, uh, in, in literary terms, a really interesting, well put together lyric. And then I am the walrus, that that kind of thing, you know, John is pushing in a different direction. And yet, Paul also pushed in different directions, but did it on a more macro level, you know, coming up with this idea of, you know, how about if instead of being the Beatles, we're the Sgt. Pepper band? How about if we do a film that we just direct and we have no scripts? Let's just go do it, you know? Um, or, you know, what became the get back, let it be thing. Okay, now let's go back and do stuff that we can play live and record it live. Let's do a live album. We have, you know, originally 19 days to get this thing together with all new songs and go out and play after not having played for three years, you know? Um, and the heart of that difference is something you can see in the Get Back film where they're about to go, you know, the day before the rooftop concert and Paul kind of doesn't want to do it because Paul is saying, look, we do this and, you know, this just becomes a documentary about us making an album. So big deal. And John says, yeah, but making albums is what we do. But Paul had a bigger concept than that. Paul didn't want it to be just about making an album. He wanted it to be something they hadn't done. You know, um, and so Paul, you know, in a way, John was always pushing to do different things that the Beatles hadn't done, but in terms of specific kinds of songs, specific kinds of writing. And Paul wanted to do things the Beatles hadn't done, but in a sort of ma more massive way. You know, this this album should be completely different. This film should be completely different you know, like that. And that's in a way a similarity and in a way a difference, you know. Mm -hmm. That was excellent, Alan. It was, you know. Why, thank you, Ken. That's <laughs> why they pay me the medium bucks. <laughs> they pay you? <laughs> well, no, not for this. <laughs> you know, one of the, the things they say about the Beatles that made them special, one of many, was that they didn't really want to duplicate what they had already done. Right. So it all depends on how you look at it. Because if in John's mind, what we do is make albums, he's always thinking in terms of albums, that is repeating yourself, but it's how you present yourself. There's all different ways of making new albums in terms of production. Do you make it more produced? Do you scale it back and make it raw? Do you make them songs that we can do live in front of an audience? Or do you create songs that are more complicated? The Beatles were always, you know, trying out new things so the few things I, that I, I have a footnote to something that you said earlier yeah 
Um, you pointed out that um, they both married non-British women, and in Paul's case, you know, Nancy and Linda, um, but they also both married British women and both divorced the British women that they married. <laughs> I don't know how significant that is. It's just there you a go. <laughs> See, more similarities here, Alan. <laughs> Um, in differences, uh, we already kind of discussed this, their public personas were very different. John spoke his mind. Paul was very careful about everything that he said and more private most of the time. Working in the studio, John went for feel, often lacked patience. Paul at times was a perfectionist. He varied in his approaches in recording. Um, in the studio, both men knew what they wanted yet would consider other ideas from musicians and producers. That's what I've heard about the two of them. Yeah, I think so. Um, and that's pretty much it. Oh, differences. I've said this before. I think Paul thrived on the competition between the two of them, whereas John was, I think, more threatened by it. And, and that would be it. That's what I came up with for differences. That's I'm not sure John was threatened. I'm not sure he was thre threatened so much as, um, you know, when he he talked about coming up, for instance, it was sort of like this is this is a good track. Uh, now I'm going to have to do something. You know, uh, I think he felt spurred on when he felt Paul had done something good. I mean, he often sort of made it seem as if he didn't think Paul was going to do anything good. I mean, in the Rolling Stone interview, he says, I think Paul, you know, has a good album in him and then adds, but I don't think he can do it twice. You know, I, I bet he did think he could do it twice. I think sometimes he would just say things like that just to, to needle Paul. <laughs> but I think it was pretty clear that when Paul did something that worked, that John liked, he felt like he had to get in there and do something himself, you know? So I, I'm not sure if it was threatened so much as, um, you know, claiming that Paul wasn't going to do it, but when he did it, being inspired by it. Hmm. I don't know about that because I'm always reminded of, like I mentioned before, I think it was Magical Mystery Tour. John said that he came in with two songs and Paul came in with 11. You know, he was always bothered by the fact that I Am the Walrus was the B-side of Hello, mm. Goodbye. And I think mm. that towards the last few years, he was seeing that Paul was every bit on his level. You know, some might argue even doing better than John was. So, you know, I think that kind of bothered him. Maybe, you know. All right. So I think that we've uh, we've said as much as we can say, at least at this moment on this subject, that I, I would certainly love to hear what you guys watching this or listening to this have to say. Please write to <laughs> us here. This uh, is truly an, a topic that there is absolutely no accurate, correct, right, wrong. Um, you know, we've taken every angle and I think we've kind of twisted them around to make, uh, uh, to come up with a different conclusion. Um, they were different and they were the same. They were the same difference, really, mm -hmm. the two of them. And that's what was the magic. Yeah, well. That's what made it work. It, it worked in the Beatles. And it worked on their own. 
mm-hmm. you know, because of their individual talents being so supreme as they, as they were and still is with Paul. All four of the Beatles have had successful careers more than any other band that split up. So uh, why don't we go around the table here, the round table, the virtual round table, and mm-hmm. tell folks what we've been up to. We'll start with uh, Darren. I haven't been up to much, actually. <laughs> um, go to my Facebook pages. That's a, that's the best way to keep uh, to get in touch, keep in touch, stay in touch. Uh, two pages. One is Darren DeVivo. Send me a friend request. Or uh, there's another page that you'll find if you did a search uh, that uh, you could click follow or like or whatever the button is called this week on Facebook. <laughs> Uh, and as for uh, listening to WFUV, I can be heard Monday through Thursday night, starting at 10 uh, till 2 a.m. And Saturday afternoons from 1 to 4 uh, at 90.7 FM uh, in the New York metro area. But if you're outside that, you can stream us anywhere, WFUV.org, so our website, or we have an app you can download. And that's a great way to be able to listen wherever you are. And and really that's that's the deal with me. Okay. Alan, how about you? Okay, what I've been up to is basically um <clears throat> working through volume two. I'm so far sort of stuck in the early months of 1974, but 1974 turns out to be a really interesting year. Um and I'm looking forward to getting uh, a little further into it than I am, but you know, it's the, the, the process of just like with the first book, you know, it's, there's always interesting stuff happening and you always are looking forward to getting to the next little hurdle. Um, but you sort of got to get there and, uh, it's, it's coming out pretty nicely. I think if I say so myself, um, and, uh, otherwise, um, I, I should point out probably that, uh, when the book comes out on December 13th, um, on the 14th, Adrian and I are both going to be at the Grammy Museum in Newark, New Jersey, um, at a uh, event sort of hosted by Ken Womack. And um, I think Ken is curating an exhibition at the Grammy Museum, a, a Beatles exhibition that runs from November through June. And so our event is on December 14th. We'll both be there. Not sure what we're going to do. We can either do a presentation or Ken can interview us or um, some combination thereof. And we'll have books and we'll be signing them. And uh, um, probably a a rare opportunity for the two of us to be on the same continent at the same time. So if you want a book signed by both of us, you should turn up. Anyway, if you want to get in touch with me, uh, I've got two Facebook pages. Uh, one is just Alan Cozen. The other one is Alan Cozen Remixed. Um, I guess that's the sort of, you know, special Giles Martin page, you know, the remixed page. Um, <clears throat> you can also reach all of us by email at things we said today, radio show at gmail.com. Um, we've been getting a lot of uh, email lately at that address and um, some people presenting some interesting ideas, possibly for future shows or just to sort of discuss things uh, further that we've been talking about. And, uh, you know, people also have been commenting a lot on 
on the YouTube version of these shows, which is the video version, um, which we hope you're watching and we hope you subscribe to. Um, if you just want an audio version, uh, we're on Podbean and Podbean distributes to all kinds of other places like um, Apple, iTunes, or iPodcasts or whatever it is now. Um, <laughs> I believe also to Google and iHeartRadio. Um, we're all over the place. So if you're listening to this, you already know where to find us, but we hope you're watching on YouTube. Um, anyway, um, I think that's about it for me. Uh, we also have a Twitter feed at Things We Said Fab. And uh, yeah, that really is it for me. <laughs> all right. Uh, as for me, you can write to me directly at my email address, which is everylittlething at att.net. On my YouTube channel, which is Ken Michaels Radio, a couple of interesting shows I did in the last two weeks, uh, one of which was just a, a fun conversation with the simplest idea of all, gathering together some Beatle experts and talking about what we feel was the Beatles' best album, going by their UK albums. So I did have Tom Hunyadi and Joe Mayo, both of which are part of my uh, Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast podcast. And um, you also know Tom from his Two Legs solo Paul McCartney podcast. Joe Mayo has his own channel, Me, Mr. Mayo. Dylan Seavey, who is a frequent guest on my show and on Two Legs, a Nashville musician. And he uh, drums, plays guitar, is a songwriter, and he is extremely insightful and knowledgeable on Beatles and solo Beatle music. And John Montagna joined us. He was a guest here on our show. He's a bass player. He has uh, performed in Alan Parsons' group. He's also been a part of the Happy Together backing bands uh, a few times. And he's been at the Fest for Beatle fans, where he's run bass clinics, going through Paul McCartney's work in the Beatles, uh, especially the Abbey Road album, which he did not that long ago. So we just talked about what we all felt is the Beatles' best album. And once in a while, I'm going to bring back that whole idea and invite, you know, anyone I want. And you guys, of course, are invited whenever you want to discuss this. It's interesting to hear different opinions. There is no definitive answer. <laughs> no matter how you skin the cat, you can make a case for all the Beatles albums, what you think is the best. But it's just a fun talk. And I also interviewed Madeline Baccaro, who was our guest on our last show. She wrote that brand new book on Yoko Ono called In Your Mind, The Infinite Universe of Yoko Ono. Asked her a lot of questions that we didn't tackle here on Things We Said Today. My uh, radio program called Every Little Thing, my Beatles radio show. Uh, brand new show is going out this week on many of my radio stations. I do a uh, thematic set of life songs songs that have the word life in the title. This is the second time I've done that. Um, and also on my website, I've mentioned from time to time, there is a page for every little thing where you can look up all the radio stations that carry the show, when they run them, links to their websites so you can stream them. But something brand new just happened because up until now, every little thing was never available on demand. Up until now. Um, one of the stations that airs 
every little thing. And that's WFDU, that's Fairley Dickinson University Station, where my show runs Sunday mornings at 6 a.m. Eastern Time, is now posting shows to stream on demand. There are many different shows. So if you want to listen to every little thing, and you don't want to have to figure out what specific time it runs on a specific station. You can just go to their website, which is WFDU.FM. Click on the tab that reads HD1 Recent Archives. Now, my shows will be posted shortly after the live broadcast, the Sunday morning at 6 broadcast on the station. Um, and each will stay there on the on-demand uh, page there for two weeks. Okay, so at your leisure, you can listen to every little thing during the week, whenever you want on uh, WFDU's website, WFDU.FM. All right, and uh, there'll be another talk, more talk soon. We will be reviewing Ringo's new EP, EP3, very soon. And um, some of the uh, panels, I believe, from the Fest for Beatles fans will be posted soon on the Talk More Talk uh, YouTube site. So um, that particular show, which is all about the solo Beatles, uh, well, most of the time, you can find on YouTube at Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast. If you can, please subscribe to that and to Ken Michaels Radio. And then there's my website. <laughs> Almost forgot that, kenmichaelsradio.com. There's Beatles trivia there every single week where you can win one of 10 prizes. This is my most recent prize, Lennon, the mobster and the lawyer. I talked about this. It's by Jay Bergen, who is John's defense lawyer and the whole Morris Levy. Chuck Berry's You Can't Catch Me being a line used from that in Come Together. There was a whole lawsuit um, and uh, it takes you through the entire time that uh, this took place with John's own testimony, um, which you can read right here in the book. And Jay has uh, signed the copies here to give away if you want to win that brand new book here from Jay Bergen. All right. I think that's it. This has been a fun conversation. And uh, as I said, I'd love to hear what you guys have to say. So please write to us. And, and like Alan said, write to us with ideas for the show because we read everything that we get here and we appreciate your support of the show whether you listen or you watch and uh for darren devivo and ellen cozen this is ken michael saying thanks so much for listening we'll see you next time let's go mets